Hello and welcome to the Lincolnshire LMC Hot Topics podcast. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today for this episode of the Lincolnshire Hot Topics podcast. My name's uh, Dr Lucy Doddington-Boys. I'm a GP in Lincolnshire and I'm working with Lincolnshire LMC as well. And I'm joined today by um, Dr Bevis Heap. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. So, um, Bevis, if it's all right, I'd just like to just ask you a little bit about um, what are the sort of changes that are going on at the moment with regards to GP training? And maybe some people are listening today and they're, they're thinking about training and supervi- supervision and how to get involved. And could you just give us a bit of an update on what the sort of situation is at the moment? Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, it's quite an exciting time, actually, because uh, it's being increasingly recognised that GP is a specialty in its own right. And therefore, registrars don't need to spend hours and hours and days and days and weeks and weeks and months and months in uh, hospital jobs so we're changing the the scheme to uh, them having 24 months in general practice instead of uh, the 20 months that they previously had Um, and that comes into force for the group coming in in August of this year Um, alongside that um, is the the need obviously for more trainers um, and so we're looking at uh, associate practices so that we can get more people or placements for them. Uh, but we need more trainers at both clinical supervisor and educational supervisor um, levels for that reason. Fantastic. And I know something specifically that we, we said we talk about today was kind of the the process and what's involved in becoming an educational supervisor. And um, yeah. that's what we're going to talk about today. And um it's really helpful to know that that GP training is changing and it's a really exciting time for people to get involved. Um, what what would you say in, for, for, for listeners that might be wondering about getting involved with GP training um, specifically as a as an educational supervisor? Like why why would you um, choose to do that? What what would you get out of it as a as a clinician and as a practice? Okay, oh that's a really good question. I think the first thing to say is it's not for the money. Yes, it is remunerated, but that's only part of it. And I think for most of us, um, having been an educational supervisor or a trainer, as it, as it was for a long, long time, the real reason for doing it is it, uh, it's the feeling of encouraging younger doctors on their career path um, and the keeping yourself on your toes, both in terms of your consultation skills and your clinical knowledge, because you have to have a good range of both. Um, and I'm not saying that doctors who aren't educational supervisors aren't, but it's really a good impetus for for keeping that up to date and keeping going and keeping that curiosity going that keeps us all in, in our jobs. Um, without that, it gets a bit mundane and a bit boring and grinds people down. Oh, thank you. Thanks for asking. Yep. Uh, nice to be here. Um, so I'm an ex-GP. Um, but I work for Health Education England now, variety of roles, uh, but the one we're talking about today is the new trainers course. Uh, I'll get a plug in for the uh, induction and refresher and retainer schemes whilst I'm here, but uh, we'll move swiftly on from those, shall we? You mentioned before uh, a term associate practice um, and you've also, so we've got training practices and there's also been, I've heard um, 
it discussed uh, kind of hub and spoke models, hub and spoke practices. Yes. Could, could you explain a little bit about what the distinction is between um, practices and how they how they how they might do this training? Yeah, thank you. Uh, the the essential difference is an associate training practice wouldn't necessarily have an educational supervisor there. There would be a clinical supervisor who is doing the the training on a day to day basis with the registrar in post, but the educational supervisor would be um, at another site but would assist the the clinical supervisor a bit more so it's it's um this is the hub and spoke idea so the the spoke is the clinical supervisor and the trainee the hub is the educational supervisor with their own trainees their own clinic their own registrars in practice to to uh, to be supervising but also helping to supervise the ones in at a distance and this is a relatively new idea but it helps us to to spread the um, workload that's coming from the the extra time in general practice that's needed and the fact that we've got more registrars coming now than we've ever had before the numbers mm. have gone up yet again this year and that's very good because um, East Midlands was a few years ago not recruiting terribly up to its numbers now we're all almost oversubscribed so the fact that that's happened is, is a good sign Mm. Uh, given that we're still, if you look at the GP numbers overall, we're still losing GPs in total. So we need to make up that shortfall. Absolutely. And I think as you're describing it, it, it you know, it is, it's a difficult time, but an exciting time for, mm. for Lincolnshire, isn't it? Because we're, we're, there's so much going on and there's lots of different changes, some of which we're discussing today. Um, but hopefully listeners will be kind of hearing what you're describing this hub and spoke idea this idea of maybe some practices that haven't been haven't really maybe thought about training before um there's a way that they could you know start off perhaps as you know doing some clinical supervision as part of this hub and spoke model and then kind of maybe their interest could grow from that point is that kind of part of the idea do you think that's that's absolutely the idea yes because previously uh, the arrangement was that you as a registrar you started your st1 in you had four months in a practice and you in st3 you went back to that practice but in st2 you went to a different practice but again that would be a training practice now we've got the option of going into another practice but having the support there from an educational supervisor so if you want to call it dipping your toe in the water um, that would be quite a good description of it. You get to do clinical supervisors reports, which is part of the process. You get to do the assessments, which the work-based placed assessments that the registrars have to do. Um, but you don't have the whole uh, process landed on your shoulders as the first thing that you ever do. Um, so I think I think it should be attractive to a number of people. Yeah. So if um there are people listening to this which I'm, I'm sure there are that are thinking okay i like the idea of becoming um a supervisor um maybe an educational supervisor maybe a clinical supervisor um i like the idea of my practice kind of being kept on its toes by trainees and um thinking about you know recruitment and the future future workforce planning and improving patient care what what would be the next step is uh, is there a course or something that we yeah. can tell people about yeah they're in they're in it's all on on the he website um and i'm sure sure there's a way of a, of, of making that available to people um, i will make sure everybody knows yep 
Yeah. Um, and essentially, for for being an educational supervisor, contacting me is the next, having a read of the what's on the website and then contacting me is, is the first stage of that process. If you want to be a clinical supervisor, there are two approaches. There, there is a, a central course which is run for the whole of East Midlands, which is run by my colleagues, uh, Pete Wells and Julia Taylor. Uh, and at the moment, uh, both these co both courses are done virtually. What will happen to them in the in the future, I don't know. But certainly at the moment, we're going to be sticking with virtual because of the COVID situation. Um, eventually, I think we will go back to some face to face. There is also uh, in Lincolnshire, um, Stephen Cass runs an associate trainer course, which is the clinical supervisor course as well um, and goes into quite a lot of detail. Um, and a number of your colleagues will have gone to that um, and become clinical supervisors that way. So there are two courses to approach there. Um, but if you want to be an educational supervisor, you need to have a chat with me. Um, and the, if you look at the website and you think, actually, that's different from what I remember, there are, have been some changes recently. We've reduced the amount of time you have to be in a practice before you can become a trainer. Um, and we've also removed the requirement for having RCGP because um, everybody gets RCGP when they CCT nowadays. Uh, that's when they um, get their certificate of completion of training um, and or uh, they're entitled to become RCGP members after five years anyway. So we've we've now taken that off uh, as a requirement because we recognise that particularly some of our international colleagues, we've now got international GP recruits, as you know, and some of our international GP recruit colleagues won't be able, wouldn't have been able to get our RCGP, MRCGP, but may well be interested in being trainers in the future. Absolutely. I mean, is is there anything else any prospective educational supervisors would want to know? Like, are there any costs involved, any major things that they would need to kind of factor in before they made the decision about whether to go forth with the course? Yeah, I, I think there are two things to think about. One is the cost um, for the clinical supervisors courses. There's no cost uh, for the educational supervisors course. We do charge £500. Uh, which is a contribution to the cost of the Certificate of Clinical Education, uh, which we provide at currently through Nottingham Trent University. Um, the good news is that you sort of get that back when you get your first registrar as an educational supervisor, uh, you get a CPD allowance of £500. Um, so as soon as you, you, you're you on the system and, and you've got your first registrar, that money will come back to you. So it's a kind of deposit if you want to think of it that way. The other thing they really need to think about is that time issue that we talked about and how much commitment they can do. And the course, this, I'll talk about the educational supervisors course in particular, there's, there's two lots of three days that they need to block out of their calendar and a lot of writing of essays. I say a lot, there are four essays, four, essays, four assignments to do, 3,000 words each, which sounds really scary, but most people get through it uh, without too much trouble. And I would expect most people to have gone through the whole process within about nine months. Alongside the course, they also need to be in touch with the local schemes. So either Lincoln or Boston in Lincolnshire's case, um, so that the scheme are aware that they're there. They can get them involved in the educator meetings that they have so that people can keep up to date with what's going on locally. Um, and also they will need a formal visit from the, the programme to to say, yes, you are ready to be an educational supervisor. 
So that process goes on in parallel to doing the actual certificate course or the new trainers course. If that mm. makes any sense at all. It does. It does make sense. And um, you've mentioned the course, the postgraduate certificate. Are there are are there any um, other courses that are kind of equivalent that that would also be recognised? So someone might already have something similar and they wouldn't want to have to repeat, you know? Yeah, 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 I, exactly that. I wouldn't want people to have to repeat that. Um, if you've got a certificate of medical education or clinical education, talk to me about it. The de Montfort certificate, which a lot of um, doctors do early on, um, can, which includes medical leadership and education is is seen as adequate but i've had had people from all over the all over the country and in fact from other parts of the world come with certificates which are which clearly have the equivalent uh, information in them so we're happy to accept people um with that they would still need to do the course but they don't have to do the assignments so they do two and a half days um, on the first module and three days on the second module. They don't need to do the first half day because that's how to write an essay at M level. Because we recognise that those people who are writing essays at M level for the first time might not have written an essay since they did GCSE um, history or geography in the year. Blah, 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 blah. Um, mm -hmm. And, and you know, facing the facing doing assignments is one of the big scary things about coming on the certificate course. Uh, so we do try and recognise that and help as much as we possibly can with that. Um, the other way of getting in is if you've been a trainer elsewhere, if you've been recognised as an educational supervisor and it is a GMC recognition um, and you've got that on your GMC recognition. Um, if it's fairly recent, then we would accept you straight onto the system without needing to do anything else. If it's a little while ago and your registration with the GMC has dropped off, we might ask you to do some or some of one or other of the courses, depending on how long ago it was, uh, to get yourself back up to uh, standards, particularly as the form, uh, the um, portfolio has changed recently. So there's a lot to and, and of course the exams have changed, as everybody will know, the um, the dreaded CSA has changed to the dreaded RCA or recorded consultation analysis. Um, and so getting up to speed with those sort of things, it's important that people are up to speed. So if it's five, six years since since they were last a trainer, they may they will not have any idea of that. If it was last year, but they were in somewhere else in the UK and recognised, then that would be um, accepted straight away, really. Fantastic. Um, you mentioned something before about um, a trainer's grant. So I guess my next question was going to be like, what does the practice or the educational supervisor actually get for having um, a train a, a, tra a trainee with them and for going through this process and spending the time doing the reports and things? If you have a trainee in practice, uh, then you are paid a trainer's grant. Uh, if you have a trainee who is uh, a registrar sorry I keep using the word trainee I should use the word registrar it's just they were trainees for a lot longer than they've been registrars so my apologies to registrar any recent registrars listening um, the the current grant is £8,584 per annum which doesn't sound a lot um, but when you think the government wanted to charge people for having people um, and wanted to and wanted the practices to pay their salaries it's actually better than that um, there was a there was a rumor at one point that they were going to do that. It may have been a complete lie, uh, but that's that that has been going around for a bit. Um, the other 
payment is if you have a, a registrar who is not in your practice, but you're the educational supervisor for, there's a fee of £250 for doing the educational supervisor reports and keeping an eye on them in general. Um, so that, that 8000 is whilst they're in the practice um, and the rest is um, 250 every six months so 500 pounds a year for have it for the ones that that are not in the practice but are under your uh, protection or whatever you want to call it as an educational supervisor okay. and that's that's on the HEE website as well mm. for those who want is, to go looking for it is there any cost to the practice at all um time which is costly of course uh, if you have a registrar who is in their first year new to the NHS they may take quite a lot of uh, work to get acculturated if that's a word it is now because I've just used it um, and it may take a while for even for doctors who are not new to the NHS to get accustomed to how general practice works and things so there's there's a time a time equivalent bit in there um, a doctor's bag is always helpful to have for them because most of these doctors are not coming from uh, somewhere where they've got an otoscope and an oriscope and so forth. So having that available to them, particularly if they're going to go on visits, um, many practices ask them to put down a deposit for that because if anything gets broken, they want to be able to replace it and that's not unreasonable. Um, and uh, video recording facilities are also handy. So if you have got if you haven't got those, then you might have to lash out for those to start with. Um, but otherwise, it shouldn't be too expensive. And um, one question that's come up before is about like we've we've talked a bit about kind of capacity before, like some practices that may not have enough rooms and they may think, oh, you know, we really like the idea of having a trainee, but we haven't got a specific room to put them in. How could how could that be um, kind of resolved? I, if they've got somewhere that is theirs to put their stuff, so a locker or something, that is acceptable. We used to insist on people having their own room. That becomes increasing, and that has become increasingly impractical as time has gone on. But if they're going to be in the building, they should have somewhere secure to put their their um, stuff when they're not wanting it. In the same way that you would expect anybody else to have, in the same way that you would expect any other member of staff to be able to do that. Um, so when we there isn't a requirement to have a separate room it's nice if they're in one place and they know where all the equipment is but um, if that's not feasible then you know the, a minimum number of rooms would be a good idea and certainly spreading them across several practice sites would make life difficult for them particularly in the first in you know when they first start obviously when they're getting towards the end of st3 and they're thinking about going out into the big bad world they might need to get used to that sort of idea so they might welcome having several sites to to get used to the uh, the process of finding things in different places uh, but mm -hmm. certainly at the beginning you know it's nicer if they're in one site and they've got a limited number of places they need to be looking at mm. i know when i when i was a trainee which wasn't too long ago really um it was only a year ago <laughs> um and and i uh it's just it's been a long year uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long um, year for many many people hasn't it <laughs> yeah um when I was a trainee I had I was at a few different practices and did use different rooms and, and actually like there's there's an there's advantages in some ways actually to to like 
being in different rooms I know as, as a salary GP now like I'm not always in the same room and I think that's kind of like the new reality of general practice it's it's a, it's quite a sort of mobile profession um so I, I don't think that personally my personal reflection is that I don't think that um a practice that might say oh we don't have a room to put them in it wouldn't necessarily be a deal breaker especially from what you're describing as well and, and my experience as a trainee yeah and of course you know more and more people are working from home some of the time and that's perfectly reasonable if they can work from home but i yeah. think like any other home worker we have to bear in mind their situation you know um as i i'm sitting quite comfortably in my my room here i don't get disturbances um i don't have small children running around i don't have the kitchen behind me with people trying to make their lunch um but if they're in that situation then that's got to be borne in mind and it may be impractical for some of them to to work from home so they may need a a base somewhere but as i say if they start off feeling secure um if we if we talk in 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 sort of educational theory terms if we go back to maslow's hierarchy of needs back in 1943 or whenever it was uh, he talks about basic physiological needs being met before you can start doing your educational things you know if you've got somewhere that's safe and secure and you know where the loo is and you know where you can get food and so on you're going to be more able to take on the educational aspects so that security is is an important aspect as you grow through your training as you did um you can then start branching out and moving into more rooms and more practices and and that would be a perfectly legitimate educational aim as well as a practical one for the practices yeah that's a really good point yeah i really, I really like that point um so the next question that i had for you was um you know, in terms of um, how beneficial it can be to be a supervisor, an educational or a clinical supervisor for a, a registrar, um, how much could a practice a supervisor really kind of expect of their trainees in terms of their contribution to seeing patients at the practice? I, I think I mean, you have to be realistic. A first year registrar will be um, a quarter to a half a doctor. Um, depending on how how much GP work they've done in foundation, for example, or what else they've done in their previous careers, um, they may be off, you know, really good and get going. By the time they're in ST3 and they're coming towards the end in the last six months of ST3, um, then they may well be as good as as you know um, three quarters to a full salaried doctor's worth of work, if you like. Um, they will still need supervision and debriefing and so uh, so on. So it's slightly less than a full than a salary doctor or you know that you you don't debrief, but it's it's quite close too. And some of the really good ones will will there will be added value on top of that. They will bring in something that they are passionate about and introduce it into the practice and help you to develop the practice in a, an interesting way. So they may have a, a clinical area that they're particularly good at and they spot a gap in your um, practices approach to that and be able to help you fill that. And in an enduring way that even if they even if they don't stay on as a partner, there there are there's a legacy there for you to work with. That's why I was a trainer for nearly 30 years. Um, there's lo lots of positives to it. There are some hard ones, but the majority of them you get quite a lot back at the end but don't expect them right at the beginning to be all singing all dancing gps mm. um, 
and bear in mind that training was three years when I started doing it and that's a, a long time ago it's still three mm. years um, and general practice has got a lot more difficult and a lot more complex in that time so they, they need to grow and develop. I think what what you're describing like it's it's it sounds really interesting it sounds really attractive um and it's certainly something that I've thought about before um and I think talking through some of the mechanics of it's been really helpful um today and and kind of putting it putting things into perspective in thinking of um supervising registrars as, as something that adds value um something where you kind of you're investing in in someone or more than one um doctor and you potentially might get you know something really significant you might get you know another person working for you in the future or it might really challenge the way that you're practicing and improve patient care so uh, thank you so much for chatting to me today you're very welcome thank you for giving me the opportunity to um, to push a, a, a something I'm passionately interested in I, I retired from practice as I say and from training um, and one of the reasons I did that was to spend more time being able to to look after the new trainers course. And the reason I do that is because I passionately believe it's a good thing to be doing. Mm. Um, and not just because I'm getting old and I'll need new I'll need doctors to look after me when I get old and crumbly. Um, <laughs> I really think it, it adds something to people's practices and it, it mm. makes their life. It makes the the educational supervisor's life more interesting and more likely to carry on in general practice. Absolutely. And, I, you know, certainly there's lots of talk about burnout and workload. And, and that's something that um, I know I've talked about a lot with colleagues and and doing my work with the LMC. So kind of hearing someone so passionately talk about training is like really, really refreshing. Um, <clears throat> and hopefully our listeners today will kind of be picking up on this and we'll go away and think about it. So thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you for asking me. All right. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Lincolnshire LMC. Check out our website, linkslmc.co.uk or our Twitter or Facebook pages for more information.